Hey there, listeners. A quick new update for you that I promise is going to be shorter than the last one. First off, Patreon members at $5 a month or higher will be able to listen to ad-free episodes starting at episode 100 and going forward for basically as long as this podcast keeps going. You can listen either in the Patreon app or through Spotify, where you can get an exclusive RSS feed available only to Patreon members. This is one of the easiest ways to support the podcast for just $5 a month, and I hope you enjoy your ad-free experience. Second, those single barrels are almost here. The Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac and picked with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, and the two Jack Daniels Barrelproof Ryes are on their way. Patreon members will have exclusive discounts and prime access. Even a dollar a month means you'll have a few hours more to get those bottles before they're released to the public. Last thing, there are now two spots available in the monthly bottle share club available to patrons at the $25 a month tier. If you're interested, I wouldn't hesitate. I expect the spot to go quickly. If it looks like it's all filled up and you're still interested, shoot me an email and we'll see if we can open up just one more spot. With that, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going down to Tennessee and I am so excited to have on with me Lexi Phillips. She is the assistant distiller at Jack Daniels. She is right hand to master distiller Chris Fletcher and most importantly, she was also the leader of the double Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye Pick that the Whiskering Podcast did back in June. I had to think for a second when it was, but yeah, that was back in June. Uh, so Lexi, welcome on. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to talk all things whiskey. Absolutely. That's what we do here. So I, you know, I wanted to start off with a question just to get a sense of where you're feeling right now. So back in 2022, uh, when you were just a little bit after you were elevated to the position, uh, you were talking with market whiskey cast and you said, uh, the first thing was most people don't understand the, uh, super in the weed stuff. And this was in <laughs> reference to festivals and things. And you said, you know, festivals, you have to tell the fun parts without getting too deep into the weeds. So, um, first thing is feel free to get into those weeds today. Oh, good. We like, we like the weeds. We like the nerdy stuff. Um, <laughs> and then the, the other backdrop I just want to throw at you is uh, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, in July 2021, you were on uh, Jazz Drinking Bourbon with uh, with John Edwards. Uh, and you said at that point, you were still getting used to being on podcasts and being a brand ambassador. And I'm just curious, as a first question, you know, two years later, after COVID and after all these things that have happened, um, has that changed? I think it's changed a little bit. I'll say there's always just that that touch of anxiety of um, getting out kind of in front of people, even though it's just kind of you and me right now. Um, so I don't think that's ever something that will truly go away completely. But I'll say I've gotten um, I'm I've gotten comfortable enough to just be able to speak what's in my mind and kind of be able to package that in a way that people can understand whether it's in the weeds or not, you know what I mean? Um, and kind of a, a, appreciate the whiskey we're talking about. So I think it's gotten easier, but there's always just that little tinge of anxiety before any interviews, podcasts, getting in front of people. 
<laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I, I'll be honest. This in we just passed 100 episodes of this podcast, so two and a half years or so, and I love it. It gives me so much pleasure to do this and talk to people like you. I still get a little anxious before each one. Just like, have I done the research? Did I miss something? That's it. I do, I like, but that's just yeah. part of the getting ready for it. Hoping, hoping you're prepared, and uh, yeah, just seeing where the conversation takes us. Absolutely. So let's let's start with after all that backdrop. Let's start with uh, another another throwback to a podcast. So this was in June of last year. You're on uh, Barrel to Bottle. And you said that uh, you were the sixth woman to be a distiller at Jack Daniels. Now you have the title of assistant distiller. I'm assuming when you said um, six women to be a distiller, that was kind of irrespective of title. Right. Uh, so the first question, and I, I don't mean this at all to be like, what does it mean to be a woman? What is it? That's, that's a larger conversation. It's something I don't want to necessarily <laughs> focus on here, but you know, as assistant distiller and knowing what that means at Jack Daniels, what does that mean for you as, as a title and just as who you are? Truly, I mean, it is an absolute honor to be um, honestly one of just a handful of female whiskey makers at Jack Daniels and to be the first woman to be able to hold this position at Jack Daniels, um, to be the first female assistant distiller. So um, I'll say, you know, it was it was a couple months because I actually officially came into this role in November of 2020. You know, the world was absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple months, a um, couple months after that, we were at a, um, a small little concert at a local marina near our house. And I had a Um, One of our lady tour guides, um, we ran into each other in the women's bathroom of all places, (laughs) you know, where uh, a lot of memories are always made, good conversations. And I didn't know her that well at the time, but she came up to me and just gave me the biggest hug. And she said, I'm just so proud of what you were doing for women in Jack Daniels. And I mean, it still today gives me chills because, I mean, it, it hadn't fully sunk in yet that I guess I was the first woman to blaze this trail. Um, so the support that I've received has been, my gosh, just absolutely overwhelming. And I mean, even still now, a couple of years later, I'm still having people that I worked side by side with in bottling be like, I'm just so proud of you, you know, to have started at the bottom where we all started working temporary part-time and you have made your way to where you are now, um, helping lead innovation and through distillery operations. Um, so I think it is something that I'm just kind of overcome with pride and a little humility at times, you know, just because I'm, um, I want to be very humble about it, but it's something that we're all a little proud of. So uh, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun and like you said a lot of learning on the brand ambassador side but i have i've had an absolute blast with it again without making it too much about that conversation um do you do you kind of foresee uh jack daniels and even 
if you want, Brown Foreman as a whole, kind of embracing that role of having more women and female whiskey makers in the future. I mean, this could be anything from just a, a recognition to a full on, you know, the the master distiller series of bottlings that they did for the first seven. I don't think they've put out Christmas yet. So I think it's only past. Master Not, yet. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. Um, you know, do you see kind of that recognition coming or, and are you kind of, are you satisfied with where we are right now? Uh, I'll start kind of at the end and tell me which questions I didn't really hit. So I think, um, I, I'm very happy with where we're at because, I mean, you can see growth in all all levels of diversity um, coming up through the ranks. And, you know, speaking of female whiskey makers, you know, we've had a woman working at our distillery since 1991. That was when Miss Ada Preston, the first whiskey making woman at Jack, started. So we've got three decades under our belt of women in the whiskey making process and, you know, Brown Foreman as a whole, you know, we've had um, women in roles similar to mine for a very long time, you know, with like uh, Elizabeth McCall, who was assistant master distiller for um, several years before I came into my role. And she actually just stepped up to master distiller. So I'm, I'm so very proud of that um, because, you know, speaking in terms of, I'll say, recognition, um, normally around pretty much kind of the month before and after and during Women's History Month. Um, it's something that Brown Foreman does that I, I really, really enjoy. We do uh, Women of the Grapes and Grain. So we're taking um, women that are similar uh, to roles like mine, master distillers, assistant distillers, um, or women in the wine side, you know, we come together and kind of all tell our stories on how we got here. And, um, you know, it's, I'll say the focus is kind of on women and how we got to where we are. But one thing that kind of we all had in common, you know, our mentors weren't all women. You know, it, it takes men and women for us all to succeed. You know, my biggest mentors are, are two guys and a couple offices down behind me right now and they taught me everything that I knew at the distillery so I think it's um recognizing the women but also the men and women that helped us get to where we are um so I'll say I'm I'm very happy with where we're at because we get to do things like that um yeah, yeah. I had one thing because I think, you know, being the first woman in this position, I definitely won't be the last. So there, there's going to be many, uh, many more women involved. Um, and that that's something, you know, maybe there will be a women's series one day. But uh, kind of like a gentleman, Jack, you don't have to be a gentleman to drink it. You, got, you don't have to be a lady to drink a women's series either. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. So with that, I want to jump right into the barrel pick that we did. And I should yes. say, not only double, we ended up uh, within the group that was down there taking three of the four barrels that were there. <laughs> yes. Um, which I did not anticipate, but it, it worked out. Uh, so hey, when, two... you, when you find something <laughs> you like. <laughs> yeah. Now, this was a group, uh, and this is going kind of two places through you know, the whiskey ring as one 
And then my the first whiskey group that I joined was the New Jersey Bourbon Yacht Club, the one that's not on New Jersey and doesn't have yacht and not all of us only drink bourbon. So uh, it, it between the two of us and then another group in Chicago, we'll have plenty of of uh, barrel proof rye to go around. So that should be coming in a couple of weeks, probably. So I guess the, the first question I wanted to ask with that was kind of understandably in my mind at Jack Daniels rye in some ways inevitably takes a backseat to the Tennessee whiskey, just because of the history of the Tennessee whiskey being there. It was the only thing produced there for a very long time in varying products. Uh, so it's, it's not a measure of the quality of one versus the other, but just the quantity and tradition that makes right. the rye take kind of a backseat for now. Um, and that's not to say nothing of the single malt, which we'll get to later. Um, to your knowledge, when the rye was first being thought of, when the team first thought, maybe we should introduce a rye to our portfolio. What was kind of the impetus for that? You know, I'm uh at that time, I was actually still in college when they were coming up with that. Um, but I'd say, you know, rye is such a traditional whiskey. You know, it's something that we have the ability to make. So I think it was one of those things of um, innovation starting to come to life. And rye was really has been taken off quite a bit. So um, the decision was probably just like, hey, we can we can do this. Let's go ahead and get started and do kind of our own version of it. Um, and, you know, that's where to be a rye whiskey, you know, you've got to be at least 51 percent rye green and you can go all the way up with it. Um, you know, us personally, we decided to land on that 70 percent rye grain in our mash bill. Um, just because it wasn't a uh, monolithic rye spice. I feel like it was able to add a little bit more complexities to it, let some of that barrel character shine through those um, almost like a maple sweetness of uh, vanillas and caramels. And then also some of the influence from our yeast um, that gives you kind of those fruity characters like apple, pear, banana, so I'm really glad that we did end up landing on the 70% rye grain because to me that just makes an, a perfect spot for our combination of everything within the process. And really, I think our first uh, rye that we released was single barrel rye. And of course, I'm a little partial to single barrels, you know, with each one having their own, own little differences, um, uniqueness to each one. Um it's, it was it was really just a, a lot of fun. So um, I will say rye has its own uh, special characters in the um, in the distilling process. It makes it a little bit more of a sticky mash. Um, so not quite as uh, challenging as malt whiskey, but it still has its own little differences. Because I mean Tennessee whiskey, we've got that down to a science, you know, we, we know how to make that all day long. Um, rye takes just a little bit more babysitting. Um, so I, I think it's something that we got in, I'm going to say it at a good time. Cause I'm, um, a huge fan of what we've been able to do with our rye whiskeys 
coming from 2016 to now, you know, we've had several innovations that we've led on with the rye whiskey. Um, so I'm glad we got it started when we did. And the company took some risks too at the beginning, releasing the unaged rye. Uh, That's it. Just yeah, trying to then... let people know we were making it. That was uh, actually starting to work in um, quality control at uh, when they shortly after they released that. I don't know what people thought it was going to taste like, but we had a couple taste complaints that they're like, this is not rye whiskey. We're like, well, it's rye distillate, <laughs> you right. know, not quite, quite rye whiskey yet. And then the, um, uh, the two-year-old rye whiskey, um, mm -hmm. what did we call that? The, uh, rested oh, rye. Rested rye. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, they they were stepping it out there, letting people know we were we were on the rye train. Look, I'm a huge fan of it personally. I can say I I honestly do not have a bottle of old number seven in my cabinet. It's more of I just don't have room, frankly. But also, <laughs> um, you know, it, in fairness to the product, it's something that I know that if I go out for a drink or something, I can usually find it if I right. Um, the uh, the rye, on the other hand, the base rye, if you will, um, 90 proof rye, I do a bottle of because for me, I have been on more of a rye kick, admittedly, but I think it also offers so much extra complexity while retaining that jack note. Like the, for me, there's it's still recognizable. Still has that isoamyl acetate banana note in there. Yep. Um, that depending on the product can be anything from kind of a runts banana, the kind of artificial banana to a real, you know, banana, what we think of today. So, yeah. Uh, it, so I do have a bottle of that love the single barrel, but of course being a barrel proof guy, I, the higher the proof, the better. What can I say? Oh yeah. <laughs> but, um, so this came about the interest in, in Jack Daniels rye in particular, uh, really for me took off with the Tennessee tasters rye and I have still have multiple bottles of that is I snatched up every single one that I could uh, as did everyone in my group because <laughs> I shared it with them and everyone said, Oh my God, this is some of the best rye that I've tried in years. And I think at that point it was about five and a half to six years old. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just, blew my mind it was candied it was sweet but not saccharine uh great mouthfeel not too oaky but still a backbone and we were all saying to each other like this is what is this is this brand new none of us <laughs> had even considered the jack rye before and yeah. then you know a year later you've got the limited edition the yearly release being the single barrel rye which was from what i understand the tennessee tasters uh, allowed to age for another period of time, just a longer period of time, I should say, and then put into those single barrels. And that we all fell in love with too. Although some, I think for me, I'm still partial to the Tennessee Tasters version. Are you? It's, I think so. I love the LE and I even love the barrels we chose, but there's something about those tasters that I just, you know, I'm sad that I will never find another one out there, but <laughs> that's it. Uh, yeah. But it's some really great stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we, the group kind of picked up as many as we could. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I wanted to 
take a minute to, to jump into the process of rye because yeah. it is it's made at a different facility still on the jack daniels grounds but different facility than tennessee whiskey and uh here we get a chance to really go into that nerdiness that we both yeah. like so from my understanding the when making the rye mash uh the team sours it with lactobacillus pasteurizes to kill the lactobacillus off that inoculates with yeast from mother strain f doing okay so far um so i'll say from the yeast standpoint just the mother strain i think you said did you say f after that it's just a regular yeah just we have one strain of yeast so just yeah regular yeast that we've had since prohibition yep so that was gonna be one of my questions was whether it was I think I would have to look back to see where I saw that it was F specifically, but I mean, if it's F across the board, then it's just mother strain. Yeah. Yeah. We just be a mother strain. Right. The, is this, um, so this is a strain that you said you've had since prohibition. uh, And that does answer the question too, of whether using a different strain for the rye or single. So. Yep. Same one. Hey, if it works. He broke them, fix it. <laughs> uh, uh, I know you that you weren't there, you're still in college when it was first being created and ideated and all of that. But to your knowledge, uh, what was the kind of initial expectation of the rye, both inside and from the public? Um, I would say something, you know, something I really love. Um, love to think of in, in my job. And I think that's something that I've seen across the board here is to protect the traditions of making a great product while still being able to innovate, um, to stay kind of along with the times with innovation. And I think that would be something that was in the goal, something that's a little bit different with Jack's spin in it. Um, kind of like you said, you know, when you sip it, it's different. Um, but you can tell it still has that same Jack Daniels backbone. And I think that's exactly what they were going for to where when you sip a glass of our, either whether core rye or the barrel proof rye, you're like, dang, this is really good. But I can tell this has, this is a little bit Jack Daniels. Um, so I, I think that's something that, that they would have gone after at that time. Um, Cause that's something we're still going after today. And you said the public reaction at first was, well, this is, you know, might've been good or bad, but it, it's like, this is definitely different from number seven, Gentleman Jack, which would have That's all it. come out at that time. Um, for the, next, for the unaged. Yes. Yeah. So are there, besides the, you know, the yeast is, is the same. Um, the overall process for the rye itself is, is the same. Do you use the same, type of of barrels and aging as well yep that's all still the same too so really the um the only differences are the grain bill which uh is the 70 percent corn or excuse me 70 percent rye grain 18 percent corn and that same 12 percent malted barley um and then charcoal mellowing instead of going through um, dripping through 10 feet of sugar maple charcoal, it's closer to about three feet. Um, they did notice that when they did it through 10 feet, it pulled so much of the rye character out 
that um, they decided to lessen that. And the three feet is, uh, I know it's not the same part of the process, but it's similar to the secondary of Gentleman Jack. Yes. Now this one is gravity fed, um, like, like our normal charcoal mellowing process. Um, the Gentleman Jack is pumped through, um, but very a very similar concept to how Gentleman Jack is charcoal mellowed the second time. Again, I'm I'm glad it was only three feet because there's so much flavor in there that we wouldn't want to take too much out of there. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm side note. I'm very honest with my guests, and if I don't like something, I I'll say it. If I do, I will, and I'll laud them for things that make sense. And in this case, I think it is worth saying that you know Jack Daniels is a massive company within an even larger massive company of, of Brad Foreman, but you still had the, uh, still made the choice to not just do what was kind of the norm, but to say, all right, the three feet works better. So we're going to do the three feet instead of the 10 feet or maybe five feet. And it's, I think for me, it's worth noting that because not every large company is that nimble or that flexible or willing to change things up. So that's it. I think sometimes, um, you know, with everybody talking craft distilleries and things like that, they get to talking on the size of the company. Um, and, but really I believe that the size of our company, Jack Daniels, I'll say, um, gives us the ability to be able to be a little more nimble on things like that. Um, just because, you know, if, if something's not right, we have some very, very dedicated quality control, uh, distillery managers, of course, the master distiller, assistant distiller. You know, if something's not right, none of us have a problem being like, mm, we need to stop and think about this for a second. Um, so I think um, really still just allowing us to be very hands on and um that gives us a lot of pride over our product. So I think um, speaking in terms of that, I'm, I'm really glad that we have that ability to be able to change things like that. If we're not happy with the character of the whiskey, then we're going to change it to what it needs to be. And with that, I'll, the last question I have on specifically on the rye is, uh, again, we learned during the tour that the rye and the single malt are distilled at a, a different building up the road than yep. the Tennessee whiskey. Uh, so the first question on that is, was there something about the production of those two grain bills and products that necessitated a different spot or is it more just, it would be easier to start fresh than to try to shoehorn those two into an already well-oiled machine. So when we first started making malt whiskey and rye whiskey, um, it was all done. I'll refer to them as JD one and JD two. Um, Cause JD two is really at the top of the hill right behind JD one. Um, what we did since 1938 up until 2014, you know, every, everything um, was made right there at JD one. And then you, we ran out of space. <laughs> our our last expansion of fermenters was actually digging out part of the part of a hill 
to be able to put fermenters in. Mm-hmm. And the, that distillery was made um, pretty much with the Tennessee whiskey grain bill in mind. Um, so once we saw um, that we were going to be making other grain bills and we knew that we would need to expand again um, just to keep up with demand, we went right to the top of the hill and made another um, distillery that has two stills in it. Um, And that is where we do Tennessee whiskey, but also our specialty runs. Um, It was designed truly with innovation in mind to where we could, um, we can pretty well segregate and because rye and malt both take quite a while to grind in the hammer mills. Um, so those are designed with two scale hoppers of each to where you can grind at the same time you're feeding to the cooker. And, um, it just makes it a lot more efficient up there, um, from being able to swap between specialty grains or, um, just in timing in general, instead of taking time away on the production schedule of Tennessee whiskey, we can do that along with our specialty products. So everything is the same from JD1 to JD2. All the water temperatures still uses 100% cave water in the process. Um, It's just a little bit newer building. (laughs) Makes sense. A certain point, you get around out of space. And for anyone who hasn't taken the tour, I I definitely encourage people to get down there and and see these facilities in person. You don't get to visit JD2 quite yet, but you see JD1, the kind of main distillery if you will yes. and you just see the the massive columns that are there the ones where you can stand if you obviously assuming they're off num- number one but um you know you can stand in them and put your arms out and if you're a normal sized person you're probably not going to touch the sides like it's they're huge they're like 84 inch columns something like that or 74 74 okay so maybe yeah. slightly shorter so I'm 5'10", yeah. so I'm 70 inches tall. So I could lay on the base and not touch the sides with two <laughs> inches to spare on either side. It's huge. And you don't get a scale of that until you're there. And unlike some other distilleries that have columns of that size, you can go right up next to these monstrosities and really get a feeling of, wow, looking up like, yeah. wow, that is a big sucker right there. So it's worth taking Absolutely. that tour for many reasons, but I think that that and the cave, I think, are my two um, my two favorite parts of that tour for sure. Oh, absolutely! I mean, the cave mm. is just it's it's something special that just draws people. You know, we have around two hundred to three hundred thousand visitors every year, um, and that is where everybody is just always amazed that we are still using the same water that Mr. Jack used starting in the 1880s. Um, so I, I think that's a special feeling that we get. And um, to be able to use that, of course, for both distilleries to where every drop of water that goes into making this whiskey, any Jack you've ever drank, that is from Cave Spring Water. And that's that's just the coolest thing ever to me. Totally agreed. So that's actually a really good transition to the next line of questioning, which is about Lynchburg itself and, and the site of the distillery. So 
to me at least and understand i'm a new york city born and bred long islander so i'm used to everything's 20 minutes away public <laughs> transit has everywhere everywhere so uh, to me at least lynchburg is relatively remote from yeah. you know major cities it's about an hour and a half from nashville where i've stayed both times that i visited uh and it's a beautiful drive down. It's still an hour and a half. You got to account for that. When uh, the group after the tour and the pick, we had, we were treated to lunch at Miss Mary Bobo's, which was wonderful. Uh, and we were sitting with the t- one of the town historians and archivists. And he was saying, you know, the entire County has maybe 1800 voters. Um, that's, you know, my apartment building has a hundred units in it. So it's, it's a very different scale. It's you really yes. have to understand it's a different scale. Um, so with being a little bit more remote and being um, not really having another distillery immediately in the vicinity, I would say. Yeah. Uh, a question came to mind that something the bourbon industry and American whiskey industry as a whole is known for is the sense of camaraderie of rising tide lifts all boats, the sharing of knowledge, even on competitors. And sometimes like in the case of the heaven hill fire, actual sharing of product to help them get back on their feet rather than just letting them die off. Right. So by being geographically separated, number one, and also being separated because you're not in Kentucky, it's Tennessee. So you can't, share Kentucky bourbon and then you know so there's just a little difference there um the I guess I'm questioning is it a different experience being a Jack Daniels because you are separate from others because you have a different process that is specific to Tennessee and all that or is there still a sense of camaraderie outside of the distillery still sense the camaraderie um because they have the uh like the tennessee um distillers guild um where i think there's like between 40 and 50 different distilleries now and i've gone to a couple of those events and no i mean it's just like you're with friends that you've known for years even though you may have just met them that day um i mean there's so much that goes into you know everything on making the whiskey bottling the whiskey that side plus the marketing of it um and advertising i mean there's there's so many things at play and you know it's like instantly when you walk into um a room of people that are in the same field as you i mean you are automatically feel a little bit of a connection like ooh, how do y'all do it like <laughs> how are y'all getting through this you know um so I, I definitely think there's there's camaraderie. I mean, because like me and my husband, who also works here at Jack Daniels, um, you know, even um, before I was in this position, I absolutely love going to different distilleries to see the process. And I mean, because it's a process that amazes me so much. I just love seeing the different ways that it's done. And I don't think that I'm unique in that way. I think a lot of distillers feel the same way. They're like, oh, that's cool. We do it this way and they do it that way. And we're still kind of getting around about the same outcome. Um, So I I think it's it kind of opens your mind um, as to there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, And just 
be fascinated at, I'll say, the art part that they've put on the signs, you know, because, I mean, looking at a uh, like a blueprint of a steel, you know, that's absolutely amazing. Um, but when you actually go in a steel tower, there is so much more in there than what's on that blueprint, you know, right. all the different pea traps and uh, the steam here. You can change this water to a different different um, water source and to cool the condenser i mean there's there's so much in there and to be able to see how other folks do it that's a really cool way because it's it's truly eye-opening and then flipping that question a bit you yourself have quite a generational legacy at jack daniels uh is it two dozen family members since prohibition yeah, stopping at my grandmother's third cousin. It's about two dozen family members, past and present. That's mind-boggling to me. It's it's <laughs> incredible. Um, so uh, you know, flipping that other question to the internal camaraderie of Jack Daniels, you there's so many examples of that generational transfer of knowledge and position. So Chris Fletcher being Frank Bobo's grandson, and mm-hmm. um, you having. 24 members of your family and, and hearing so many different people say, Oh yeah, my father, cousin generations back worked here. Um, of course the, the nearest green story with there's been a member of the green family there yes. since the beginning. Uh, does the, do you think that the trying to figure out exactly how I want to phrase this? Do you think that that connection internally and from generation to generation is strengthened because of either the, I'll use the remoteness, but you know, the, the lack of distilleries around you, or is it something else about the Jack Daniels culture over the years that just begs people to come back family member after family member? I think uh, I'll say a little bit of both, honestly, Um, because number one, I mean, Jack Daniels is a great company to work for. Um, I mean, they've always had some of the best benefits and pay around. And when you have that along with the, I'm going to say the Jack Daniels culture, you know, I mean, it's, um, it feels very family and friend oriented. Um, you know, me coming into Jack Daniels, my great aunt kind of helped me get the position and she wouldn't have done that if it was a bad job. You know, if um, um, like one of my family members, actually one of my cousins, uh, she wanted to work here in the quality control lab. And I'm like, yeah, it's an awesome job. I'll I'll put in any good word I can for you um, because I'd, I'd love to share it with family and friends and you know the people I like a lot you know so um I think I think it is a little bit of both because it keeps that culture of you know pretty much everybody knows everybody um you want to help each other out I wanted to make my um pat family members that had worked here in the past I wanted to make them proud of course I never knew I'd end up where where I am now um I just kind of followed what interested me um, but it's kind of a means of quality control to continue passing this on to other family members. 
Um, because being generational here, like you said, I mean, that's not a rare thing at all. Um, you know, if I go out on the road or if I'm doing a, a talk with people and I'm telling people that they're like, that's amazing. And I'm like, it is. But if you're in Lynchburg, it's not rare. <laughs> um, just because it's it's a great job. And there's so many different areas, you know, from quality control, the distillery uh, to warehousing, to bottling, um, to used barrels, even grounds crew maintenance. There's a little bit of something for everybody. Um, so I, I think um, I think culture and just everybody kind of wants to share it with uh, with the people closest to them. You know, my, my husband, he actually was working here before um, I knew him. So we met here at work. And um, so I'll say, you know, Jack Daniels has always kind of been um, one of our connections. You know, one of our first dates was the Jack Daniels 150th anniversary. Um, we Nathaniel Ratliff had a concert here at Jack Daniels. And that was one of our first dates. Cause he won tickets and I didn't. And I'm like, well, you, you've got to take me then. <laughs> so that would be uh, a condition of a continued relationship at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that, that kind of culture and just how, you know, every year um, Jack Daniels puts on company picnics and employee golf tournaments. And, you know, it just really makes you feel like Jack Daniels Brown Foreman really cares about you. Um, so it's something that, that we really, really hold on to. Yeah, it's great. And I love the, another story that uh, I came across that both you and Josh came in with a, I forget who had which, but one had a dog named Jack and one had a cat <laughs> named Jack. Yep. He had a dog yeah. and I had a cat named Jack. Oh yeah. yeah. They are, are our two highest or... maintenance. Yeah. I had, uh, he, he they called me a little bit of a crazy cat lady. I promise I'm not. Um, they just kind of come to me. I have three cats and uh, a dog and he had um, two dogs, which we've lost, lost one of those since then. So we are still at uh, three cats and two dogs. <laughs> They're like, I was more of a dog person. I always thought. And then my, uh, my now wife is definitely a cat person. We've got two, and the only reason they're not showing up right now because they love Zoom calls is because I've learned <laughs> to close the doors for interviews. Uh, oh, yeah. Only because once in a while they'll sit on the keyboard and end the recording somehow. <laughs> but, they have a mind of their yeah, own for sure. They do. <sighs> they do. So I've become a cat dad in all of that. That's it. Um, so with the uh, last question I have on, on Lynchburg, and this is something that you kind of learn about on the tour but only if you know to ask and i i would love for you to just explain a little bit so moore county where jack daniel sits is a dry county uh you can make spirits there but you cannot sell them now jack daniels has the white rabbit bottle shop on site so there there is a carve out there but i'd love to for you to just explain that carve out to uh to people yeah, it's pretty much if you make it right there on site, then you can sell it through your bottle shop. Um, and I want to say that is a relatively new law, you know, within the last decade. 
Um, and we can do tastings, and the tastings you will notice are very small pours. Um, but you won't see like any liquor stores um, throughout Lynchburg. Um, that goes to the dry county thing. We call it kind of a moist county because uh, there is a uh, gas station on either end of town and you can buy beer there, um, but just no liquor. So um, it is uh, always a fascinating thing to be able to tell everybody that um, Jack Daniels, where every drop of Jack Daniels is made, that county's a dry county and there are no liquor stores. Like I said, you can you can go to the White Rabbit and still get some of the commemorative uh, bottles, some of our special releases and different things like that. Um, but yeah, no liquor by the drink or anything like that. I have to find or coax a friend to uh, get online for me when that, when this year's limited release comes out. Cause I've, I've seen some pictures of it, I believe. And yeah. I'm very, very excited. <laughs> to, um, <laughs> you are going to love out. it. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is absolutely delicious. Yeah. Um, we'll save that for a little surprise, of course. <laughs> this month's Impact Spotlight is on White Heather and McNair's blended whiskeys and the tales of the two men who made these venerable brands what they are. The first is Billy Walker, a 2021 Icons of Whiskey Hall of Fame inductee and owner of the Glenallachie, another Impex brand and a recent podcast guest. Billy has over five decades of experience in the Scotch world. With White Heather unshow filtered blended whiskey, Billy returns to his roots. White Heather was relaunched in 2021 with a 21-year-old blended Scotch, and is now joined by a 15-year-old edition. Both feature 47% single malt in their blend and draw from top stocks in Isla, Speyside, and the Highlands. The 15-year-old is matured in American and Spanish oak casks for a beautiful blend of honey, malt, wispy smoke, and candied citrus. The 21-year-old is matured in American oak and cherry butts for 18 years before a final three years in PX and Oloroso punchins. This is plus time in medium toast and medium char Appalachian oak for a final burst of sweetness and complexity. The second story is of Harvey McNair. McNair was the essence of a Victorian Scotsman. He accomplished many trades and travels in his lifetime, and more than anything, he loved and championed the natural, unadulterated color of whiskey. Pure gold, as he called it. Pure gold was the foundation of the whiskey blends he created. Today's McNair Unchill Filtered Blended Whiskey, thanks to Billy Walker, honors Harvey's legacy, marrying peated malt, Highland, Isla, and Speyside with Glenallachy Spirit. This is a blend for the pea lovers. To find all of these whiskeys and any Impex product, visit a premium spirits retailer near you. You can also visit Impex at www.impexbev.com or email office at impexbev.com for those harder to find releases. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Again, looking back to that Dad's Drinking Bourbon interview uh, from, from last year, uh, Chris was on that, on that uh, particular episode. And um, one of the things he said, I'm paraphrasing, was that he feels that you need to understand the parts of the process so that you can explain and experience the whiskey as more than just the dram in front of you. And uh, that's something that you had echoed in um, other interviews as well. So it's definitely something that's an ethos from the, from the team, if you yeah. will. Uh, 
and clearly having come up the way you did, you know, the process you're, you're able to, as we've already seen, you know, throw those numbers and the yeast being the single strain and all these things off the top of your head. So you've, you've got that down. Uh, the, the question I have on that, and I'm going to press you on this little, just a little bit uh-huh. is regarding the single malt and the malt whiskey. Okay. So just a, sh- a short background. So for me, when I try a product that's finished or double finished, you know, double maturation and something else, I always want to try that base spirit first because I want to know what's that profile that you're working off of. Kind of like if you're looking at an exploration of Jack Daniels, you have to start with the old number seven. That's the core and everything else gets compared to it and contrasted, but you have to know what the core profile is there. And so far we've seen uh, two releases that included the malt whiskey, the triple mash from Mm -hmm. 22 and then the um, double barreling, which was finished for two years in Oloroso casks uh, that was late 22, early 23. So in the spirit, no pun intended, of um, understanding the parts of the process, will we see the malt whiskey on its own? I kind of hope so. I really do. Because um, we, we've got enough laid down that um, I feel certain that we could let some out. And it, even if it is a small special release, um, because, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Knowing everything that went into making that whiskey Um I will say it has a very different character being a hundred percent malted barley. Now that's in the yeast mash and in, in the regular grain, the overall grain bill. Um, It's a very different character than people that are normally drinking a a Tennessee whiskey or a rye whiskey would be used to. Um, So I think it was almost introducing it. Um, kind of a soft introduced you know because malt whiskey has a lot of the grain character um even though it's not an overpowering grain like corn's going to give you that grainy sweetness rye is going to give you spicy malt to me it almost tastes just like just like the grain um like malty almost hay or grass um, like in Scotch production, I mean, there's a reason they age it for so long, which now their climate is very different than ours. And they're using second or third use uh, casks, barrels. Um, but I think it is something that it just needs a little extra age because um, there's a flavor in there to me. It's it's kind of that hay, grassy flavor that comes along with um malt whiskeys and i think just to do our due diligence we got to give it a couple more years i at the last um just standalone rye that i'd tried um we had our warehousing guys pull some samples and i'd had some from 15 16 and 17 and um of course i think i've i've probably tried it a lot more than than most people because i've never I can't say I've had American single malts before we started putting ours out um, or before we started really kind of building our batches. And then we kind of do like a competitive set and taste other people's. And I mean, I know I'm a little partial, but 
I absolutely love ours in compared to the competitive set. So it's something I'm really proud to put out. Um, I think that adding it with the Oloroso Sherry cast, letting it finish in there. Um, I think it actually sat in the cast for about two, two and a half years. And it did add such a good sweetness to it, but you can still taste that malt in there. And I know you're not sipping, but I happen to have all my taster glasses right here. Of course. Because, I mean, it has that, when you go to smell it, it has that one note I'm talking about. And I I have come to really absolutely love it. Um, but I could see if somebody's just used to drinking, um, sipping our old number seven, it's going to be quite the shift for them. Um, so, but I've had a lot of folks that had like the triple mash or now our twice barreled uh, American single malt. You know, it, um, I think they're coming around to malts. You know, I think, I'm not sure if the, American single malt. Did, has the designation fully gone through? Do you know? Oh, we're still waiting. Um, still they had the public waiting. comment period last year, uh, fall of last year. And at first we thought, oh, yeah, it'll be by the end of the year. Then it'll be in the spring. Then it'll be in the summer. <laughs> and now we're hoping <laughs> end of the year. We're, fingers I mean, crossed. They, they waited six and a half years to even get the public comment period up. So who knows? That's wild. That's it. Yeah. At some point, it will fully go through um and to me i'm I'm really excited about that because that goes back into you know like um just eye-opening to see other people's processes did they did they use 100 percent malted barley in theirs um you know because some people may go straight to used barrels and they may not do first use barrels um now ours are first use barrels and to me that adds an amazing character to it because you know most um a lot of malt whiskeys are in used barrels so that adds that kind of same complexity i was talking about with the rye whiskey at 70 percent rye grain um it allows just an absolutely beautiful color and some of those confectionery notes to kind of mix with that malt grain flavor and aroma it just gives it such a good creaminess honestly yeah, for, so for me, I'm, was, I'm, go yeah. ahead i was gonna say for, for me that was it was apparent to me kind of where it was going i think maybe because the oloroso was and just is by its nature it's a strong flavor um and i wasn't sure because i wasn't sure what the single malt tasted like by itself it was difficult for me to kind of pick out what flavor was specifically the Oloroso and what was kind of Jack's own spin on, yeah. on a malt whiskey. And um, I certainly hear what you're saying that some, that it sometimes just needs a few extra years. I've tried a lot of American uh, single malts and yeah, more often than not, they do <laughs> take a few more years to age, maybe not they as long do. as Scotland, but they take a few years. Um, and even using new barrels, which uh, not everyone, you're right, not everyone is doing. Some are using new, some are using old, some are using five gallon barrels and uh, and not right. from there. So I think for just for me as uh, even less so as a consumer, more so just as someone who, who likes to taste things and write about them, I would love to, to see that by itself and um, even in a limited release, just to say, yeah, this is what it tastes like and this is what we're doing with it. 
And right. then you get into the triple yeah. mash and the twice barreled and all of that. And I, I picked that out only because it was the flip side of how the rye had been rolled out, where you started with the new make rye and then the rested rye and then the single barrel. So it it totally flipped it on its head. And I had to ask about that process. <laughs> yeah. Cause um on on the malt process, you know, that that takes the absolute most babysitting in the distillery when you're making malt whiskey. Um, it takes that is the longest grain to grind. Um, mm-hmm. So it takes a lot longer to to mash, to make, to grind the grains to mash. Um, it likes to foam on you. Uh, so in our 40,000 gallon fermenters, you can only fill it three quarter of the way up and it still may overflow out the man way. Um because we're actually controlling that foam just with leaving extra head space instead of an anti-foam or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so keeping it very um, controlled on the temperature. And it is, with it being 100% malted barley, then it is a much um, thinner mash. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it ha- comes with its, I'm going to say slight hiccups, headaches throughout the distillery because that's that same foaming motion will happen after at the end of fermentation when you're putting it through the column steels. It wants to foam in there. Excuse me. It wants to foam in the steels and that throws off your pressure and level transmitters. And um, it's a it's its own special little beast. Um, but our, our malt whiskey is um, fully charcoal mellowed. Um, so that's another different thing about our malt whiskey. And a lot of people ask if it is the same malted barley that's in the other two grain bills. And it is a different one. Um, so where in the other two grain b- bills, it's uh, 12, makes up 12% of it. And what we're looking for in that is high um diastatic power the amount of enzymes within it um because we don't use external commercial enzymes in our mashing process we rely solely on the natural enzymes present in the malted barley since our malt mash is 100% malted barley we know that it's it's going to break the enzymes are going to break down within there so um we actually go versus a distiller's malt that has the high enzymes, we go to a brewer's malt. It's a little more plump of a grain, a little bit more flavorful. That's what we use in our malt mash. Is that brewer's malt probably a, a two row as opposed to a six row? Um, I think it's honestly a cop. We can take both. Um, I want to say which one of those is... Um, I can't remember which one of those is the dominant one now because one of them, they don't do as much of, Wait, I want to say you're right. It is a two row. I feel like the six, yeah, I feel like the six row is more dominant, but they're the two rows coming back because you just get more, uh, as you were saying, the plumpness of the grain is a little more that to me, that rings more of a two, two, uh, a two row, but um, right. Yeah, but as but you're right though, as long as you got that diastatic power, that's what you need. Exactly. Um, it's worth noting. I still find that incredible across Jack Daniels products that the 12% malt 
malted barley uh, is all you need, that you don't need any extra enzymes. There are no commercial enzymes. You're not pitching anything in. That's to me, that's mind blowing for the scale of what you're doing. Yeah. So So I'd say uh, it's a bad day when your computer program um, that you're watching, you're sitting in the control room, you're watching the mash floor. And if one of your temperature transmitters are off, say it's 160 degrees, not 148. And you're supposed to be feeding your malt in. I mean, you're denaturing part of that malt and it will turn into a thick cooker quick. It makes a very long day. (laughs) Um, So it would be a lot easier and probably a little more cost effective, honestly, to use the um, commercial enzymes for Tennessee whiskey, but it is, um, or for our grain bills, but it is, um, we have graphs that actually show that a commercial enzyme will break down the starches within the grains differently than the natural enzymes do. Our natural enzymes in malt break it down to maltose, two glucose molecules, where the commercial enzymes will normally break it down just to the single glucose molecules. Um, And our yeast actually prefers to eat maltose. Um, It can eat glucose, but it's just going to eat it through too quick. Um, So it will actually change the flavor of our whiskey if we swapped to commercial enzymes. Um, So it's something that I really love being able to tell people that we do this a natural way. Now, there's nothing wrong with people using commercial enzymes. Um, But I, I just I take a lot of pride in that we are we are able to be able to do it um, a very natural way. It's also just cool to hear about the how you know that your yeast prefers the different form of sugar as opposed to the one mo- the two molecules as opposed to the one molecule. And mm-hmm. I don't think I had known that separation before. So that's another thing yeah. I can now throw in the in the memory bank. That's it. Now I now I got to ask future people like if you are using either a mix <laughs> of enzymes or if you're pitching. Okay, have you studied why your yeast like one or one or the other. So that's it. Ask. Yeah. Cause one of our, um, past microbiologists, I mean, he, he'd done a lot of studies on that and we ha- actually have graphs of how much of the DP one, two, three, and four are remaining, bef- uh, um, <clears throat> using enzymes versus not. And, um, it was actually pretty amazing to see it all put on a graph of, um, pretty much our yield can be better with just using the natural enzymes and producing the same flavor profile. Awesome. Still boggles my mind. <laughs> uh, so in the last you know 15 minutes or so that I've got you for, uh, I have two topics that I got that we got to get to. Number one being the innovation council and all the innovations you're doing. And then the second one is going to dive into your own history with the agricultural space like can't uh can't interview lex phillips without asking about that part of the history exactly um so we'll start off with the innovation council and this applies again as many questions do to both jack daniels itself and to brown foreman as a larger company um so feel free to speak to whatever you can as far as you would like to as always okay 
So uh, number one, having the innovation council count, is it one council or multiple councils? One council. One council. Mm-hmm. So uh, having the council to, to share ideas, to say, maybe we should try this or what's coming up and what's new and uh, what are the trends? Is there a, um, is there a setup in place where, you know, someone has an idea that what if we tried this finishing or this process that the council can say, you know, I don't know if this would work for just throwing names out there. I don't know if this would work for Jack Daniels, but maybe it'll work for, you know, old Forrester or Woodford or instead, and let's move that around. Is there an ability to transfer those ideas between companies like that? I will say that the innovation council that I'm on is solely Jack Daniels. Um, I'd say, you know, maybe old Forrester, Woodford and all them, they may have kind of their own version of that. Um, but ours is just strictly Jack. Gotcha. So yeah. the, the specific example that I was thinking of, and again, this, this may be coincidence. It could be a different. It could be anything was the, Tennessee tasters, uh, the very first one, the high angel share. Yeah. And that was, I don't have my bottle in front of me. I want to say 2017 that one came out. I think you're right. Yeah. And maybe two to three years later, old Forrester had the 117 series that was named almost identically. It was the same kind of idea. Yeah. Um, slightly higher proof. It was a 110, I believe, instead of 107. But effectively the same thing, you know, let's find some barrels that had a really high evaporative evaporative loss and see what it's like. So there's that sequential journey. And then following that, the year after, if I have my timeline right, you've got the first and then the second batch of Koi Hill. And the to me, that follows a thread line of what do you get when you have these barrels that are high in the rickhouse, tons of evaporation, really concentrated flavors. And so for me, because they're all coming from one larger overarching company, it's almost too coincidental that they would all kind of have the same thought process and not cross over. So I totally understand if you can't answer this question, but I thought it worth to ask, like, was it an idea that just worked at one? And then we're like, you know, we should try this for Old Forest or we should try this for then go back to Koi Hill or was yeah. it just coincidence? I'd say, um, you know, the Koi Hill, that was a hundred percent coincidence. Um, now the high angel share between us and then Old Forest are doing one. Um, again, I, I can't speak to how, how they came up with it. Cause we truly are separated in that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Brown Foreman owns us all, but we all kind of are still separate on the whiskey plane. Um, so, you know, that may have been an idea that they were like, oh, that's uh, that's something we can really do to not lose these barrels that have their uniqueness. Um, they've had just a lot of high angel share because um, it does, like you said, I mean, condensing those flavors you know, if you if you are not if you don't do something with it, you're just going to be batching it into a regular product that may be cut down to 80, 90 proof. Um, so I, I could see, you know, if you see something out there that's, 
you know, not even your brand that you really like, that is a good idea. You may explore that. It's not, and you know, just kind of put your own own spin on it. It's not trying to steal ideas from anybody. It's just like, wow, almost applauding them. Like, that's a great idea. Um, so I could see maybe, maybe that had happened there. But the Koi Hill, that was, that was purely just coincidence. Um, I know Chris had put a, uh, Fletcher had put a hold on those barrels for a separate innovation piece that um, ended up taking longer than he wanted and it kind of fell through. So he's like, well, we'll just keep a hold on. Um, and right after I came into my job, um, he had gotten some of the warehousing guys to go pull pull a bunch of samples of individual barrels. He's like, Hey, go, go proof these. And, um, we're going to see kind of what we're going to do with them. I came back with some of those proofs and he was like, are you serious? I mean, cause they were in the 140 to 150 range. And, uh, some of them, I mean, I had tested a time or two. Cause I mean, you don't, you don't see that often consistently on a whole batch of barrels that got that high proof. Um, so I instantly saw the excitement, you know, that he had. Um, so he went and had them sample some more of the barrels. And it was absolutely fascinating because, I mean, these are regular 53-gallon American white oak barrels, the exact same as all the rest of them. Um, but up there right against the roof. And we actually had one that reached 159 proof, 159. Now, it probably didn't have an inch of liquid left in there, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, out of the Koi Hill run, um, you know, those were each single barrels. So they had to be a certain volume to kind of fall into the single barrel range to where it does not um, fall through in the system. Um, so because if it's only two gallons and we're used to producing at least you know, 20 gallons, it's going to be hard. So the very low yielding barrels, um, that's where we released Koi Hill 2.0. And we, um, you know, a lot of people absolutely loved seeing those proof ranges because it was, uh, let's see, about 147 or 145 to 156, I believe, is what was in Something those. Like that, yeah. And, uh, it was um, about 55 barrels with that were just the low yielding. And we put those into four separate um, barrel size drums. And um, so made it small batches. And um, out of those 55 barrels, it was four and a half barrels worth of liquid. And that was... Uh, fascinating because talk about condensed flavors now you can cut it down to whatever proof you you're you're happy with but my gosh it's amazing on those koi hills and the 2.0 you know what those flavors really showed to you um to be almost nine years old or right at nine years old i'd say for the koi hill 2.0 that was absolutely amazing so uh yeah, I think I got off on a tangent on Koi Hill, but no, that's always fine. a fun one to talk about. That's why during our pick, actually, I, I think I think that's when I asked uh, you about about the Koi Hill and about um, oh, there's one part of it. Oh, the fact that it was nine at some even a little like nine and a half, pushing nine and a half years old. 
but that yeah. wasn't part of the selling point. It was the selling Mm-mm. point was really that it was burner proof, hazmat That's proof. It. I think all, all but one of the original batches for 1.0 was hazmat, and that was one one thirty nine point seven. I think everything else was one forty and above. And then, as you said, batch yeah. two was even, even higher, higher. <laughs> so much so that you had to redesign the bottles and the corks and give uh-huh. people explicit instructions you must store this upright um, and away <laughs> do from not fly heat. with it don't fly with it uh which i mean it, it's again it's it's really cool <laughs> to think about to look at the bottles you know um, for example you mentioned earlier the 150th anniversary that has a special meaning to you i have a 150th anniversary bottle um empty but still have a bottle Good. i have a couple you know a couple of the more recent limited editions and you can see the bottle design has shifted a little bit over the years uh actually the jack Daniels website has a great page that's just dedicated to the special releases where you can see the squat square bottle mm-hmm. go from being more rounded to a little sharper edge and more angled and then you get to the koi hill and has more of a bulb on there and yeah it's a little different um yeah, we obviously don't have time to go into that now, but there are a couple of episodes that of different podcasts and interviews that I'll include in the show notes for people to listen to, to really go into detail on how you figured out you had to do a whole new cork and a whole new <laughs> bottle for these things. Um, and also just more about how you went from the single barrel to the batching for the second one. I'm a huge fan of both again, profound and proud of it. Uh, and I mean, even for a proof hand, those things were hot, but God, did I love them. Yeah. Um, so fantastic. And, uh, but I, to just close out the question, I, I do understand what you mean about sometimes you see a company do you, like old Forrester could have seen Jack Daniels put out this Tennessee taster high angel share and said, we, I'm sure we've got some bottles. We don't have to wait five, six years for them. We've definitely got bottles like uh, barrels rather like that. Um, and just, not stealing the idea it's just seeing oh do we have that yeah we can do something like that and it's still going to be noticeably one's going to be noticeably jack daniels one's going to be noticeably old forester exactly mash bills it's not the same places or processes um but just because it's under that same umbrella company i i felt like i had to ask if it was coincidental or or not so um personally i'm satisfied with that answer if not other people may ask you but i had to ask for my own stuff Oh no, that's fine. But we, we really do stay pretty separate. You know, we don't have ideations with between us and old Forrester. Um, it's really pretty separate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure people above us, they mingle a little more, but you know, (laughs) um, right. So the, so I'm going to have to skip a question on the, uh, the distillery series, the new one, the Tennessee whiskey finished in Añejo tequila barrels. Uh, that that is definitely out now. You can find it. I mean, I don't know if you can find it at the White Rabbit Barrel Shop right now. Bottle shop. I keep flipping those words today. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I don't know if you can find it at the White Rabbit at the moment, but um, you should still be able to find it throughout uh, places in Tennessee. So definitely worth a try. Uh, I think f- it's going to end up on whether you like tequila or not, or or if you think the two notes match up, whether you like it or not, but. I think I liked it enough that it was worth a try and that I'm going to be sharing it. So, yeah. um, and plus for 45, 50 bucks, it's, it's not too much of an investment that if you decide you don't like it, that you can't give it to a friend that, you know, likes 
and Yeho a little bit more. There you go. There you go. But it's very balanced. Um, so I think it brings two worlds together well. But yes. Absolutely. Um, so we are at time. Uh, may I take five minutes just to ask that, ask an ad yeah. question of you? Okay. Absolutely. So in all of the ways that you've come up through, you have an agricultural background and that's mm-hmm. different from, you know, Jeff Arnett had more of a chem background. Chris has got a different background as well. Uh, you mentioned in one of the interviews that I listened to that you've been experimenting with heirloom corns and, and working with the University of Tennessee to revive lost strains. Um, we're a, a big fan on this podcast. You're talking about revived strains, particularly could be yeast, could be barley up in you know, Waterford, Scotland, could be Rose and Rye and Keystone, Rye, all these different rye varietals in the East. Um, what drew you to the heirloom corn movement, if you will? I mean, I think with my background in agriculture, I think it would it would be uh, it's very natural for me to want to tinker a little bit with our grains and just see if um, if there is a little bit of I'm going to say terroir to the uh, to the whiskey. You know, if grain that is grown only in Tennessee or a variety that was actually developed here in Tennessee um, would actually make the whiskey taste different. So that's something that we've played around with um, a little bit. And to what you were speaking specifically, working with um, UT, the um, UT in Knoxville, where they have a seed bank. Um, so it was a variety that, um, you know, they keep, they revive every five or six years. Um, so we just happen to, and they only need like five pounds of it. So they grew up a quarter acre lot for us. And that was, that was a really, really cool thing to watch them grow up just the seeds for our farmer to actually grow and it's growing next to the distillery this year. Um, so we've done a few things similar to this, uh, but this is the one that I've been most involved in. Um, I'll tell you a, a kind of a funny story about it. Whenever um, I, we got the grain um, from Knoxville, it was actually a uh, Kevin Sanders, barrel man, Kevin Sanders. He went and got it for me and brought it back here. And I went and checked on it and uh, that afternoon and it was still very hot, like hot, hot. And it had moisture in the bag. And everybody knows if you've got seeds and you got hot and you got moisture, this isn't good. Um, so I started calling different departments across Jack Daniels. Does anybody have any floor space that I can pour out about 1,500 pounds of corn and let it air dry. Um, so that one, uh, I'm I'm very dedicated to this one because me and uh, one of my friends, Brian Hardison from the Steel House, he helped me move all of this corn, corn, spread it out. Maintenance had an area that was not being used over a weekend. Um, there was a nice clean floor. So it took, uh, it was... <laughs> It took a lot of dedication over that weekend. I'd come and visit the corn twice a day and turn it over to make sure all that moisture got out before we could store it. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun. And I think it is um, 
it's really exciting to be able to grow it right next to the distillery. We watched it come all the way up. We're getting close to harvest time and it looks really, really good. Um, so that's, that's a very promising thing. Um, I still need to pull into the field and snag a couple of, uh, ears of corn, um, because a guy named Chris Ray, he, uh, works here at the distillery as well. He's our farmer that's growing it. So it makes a complete full circle, you know, checking all the boxes of, you know, uh, a corn variety that was developed in Tennessee, a Jack Daniels employee is growing it on the ground next to the distillery. Um, the assistant distiller may have done, I'll say, little corn snow angels to try and spread the corn out and let it dry. <laughs> there's there's a lot involved in this story, and I just, I hope uh, all the way through the rest of the process from harvest to getting it actually mashed and in the fermenter and in the barrels. I hope it goes just as smooth and has just as good of stories with it. Cause I've, I've had a blast with this. Yeah. Yeah. You made kind of a reverse malting floor. On that. I'm just trying to try it, you know, still got exactly. that monkey shoulder there, but, but drying out instead. Um, I'm, I know it's still very early in the process for that, but I would love to, um, you know, keep up with you as this goes along. I love these kinds of stories and the revivals of grains. And uh, for me, particularly when you have a very large company that's doing something so micro on level uh, to see, you know, is this going to play a part? Is this six, seven, eight years down the road? Is this a distillery series at, you know, 56 or something? <laughs> it's, that's um, it. You never know. Right. And so I, uh, you know, definitely keep me, uh, keep me posting on that. Cause I'd, I'd love to, see where it's going. And I do want to focus more on uh, the corn revival, just as much as we've been able to do on the barley varietals and the rye. Yes. Um, so I look forward to seeing where that, where that ends up in the Jack Daniels portfolio. And hell, if it, it just ends up in your own portfolio of a pet project that you really yeah. love to do. Yeah. We only, we only something even clearly you enjoy your job. And I think, I don't think I've met someone in this industry who doesn't enjoy their job, but <laughs> You still need those little things that are really like your own. And I can see that's clearly yours. So with that, uh, you know, Lexi, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to, to me about all things Jack Daniels, about the rye, about the single malt, the malted uh, whiskey, everything that goes along with it. Um, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of Jack Daniels, I don't think you really exist, but we're still going to have um, <laughs> links to uh, to the website, to social media in the show notes. We'll have lists to any reviews that I've been able to do or write-ups that I've been able to do. Um, other products that we didn't get to talk about today that I want to mention just briefly, the Jack Daniels 10-year-old batch two came out earlier this year along with the 12-year-old. Oh, um, yeah. I, loved, I liked the 10-year-old quite a bit. I loved the 12-year-old. I think <laughs> it it was just something really, really special. And I, I look forward to seeing those releases come out and um, keeping up the vertical, if you will, all open, but I'm still going to keep the vertical. Uh, <laughs> check out the new distillery series. They're coming out uh, at about a rate of about two a year yeah. at this rate. Uh, and of course, it being August into September, we're coming up on bourbon release series and whiskey release uh, season. So look for that limited release coming out later this year. With that, Lexi, hang on with me for just a minute to close out. Uh, this has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. 
thank you so much. Oh, and keep an eye out for those two or three single barrels that are going to be coming out right around the time this episode airs. <laughs> Cheers, everybody, and I will see you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the WhiskeyRingers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank for the support, and see you next time.